evidence and answers. Is science the only reliable method of determining what is true? Many in the culture believe that science is the only objective means to determine what is true. This is a philosophy known as scientism. Although a popular view in our culture today, Dr. Richard Howe explains why this ideology is self-refuting and flawed. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today's teaching is taken from the 2023 Evidence and Answers Apologetics Conference. Pat hosts this conference each year and brings out Christian scientists and speakers from across the country. Remember, if you missed any part of this broadcast, head on over to our website, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and look up the 2023 Evidence and Answers Apologetics Conference. You'll see all of the messages displayed. Now let's get right to part two of Dr. Richard Howe's discussion about science and how it blends with scripture. For the most part, those who hold to scientism don't use that term to describe themselves. It's really a pejorative term. It at least originated as that way. It's the term that critics give to it, which is interesting because a lot of monikers that groups go by today are actually names given to them by their detractors. I think that's true of Methodists. They were called that way because of their fastidious attention to certain methods in their liturgy. Uh, Baptists were called Baptists because of their insistence on immersion. You know, so a lot of these kind of names that we go by, people just go ahead and absorb and just adopt them for themselves. Everybody's calling us that anyway. We might as well own up to the name. I don't know if that will ever happen with scientism. But the fact that it is a, a sort of a term of derision on some people's lips, certainly on mine, it's a way of uh, being derisive of this viewpoint, I still think it's appropriate. I mean, when you see T-shirts like, Science is My Religion, these are just JPEGs from the Internet that you can buy these t-shirts in science we trust which is obviously a slam against in God we trust that we see on our money as Americans how about science never sleeps that's a a backhanded uh, slap if you will to the idea of the scriptures testimony that God never sleeps you know so he's always watching and superintending his his creation how about uh, too stupid for science well there's always religion there. It's a little in your face. About Darwin loves you. Again, a certain slap against Jesus loves you. Daniel Dennett, who is a philosopher, not a scientist, but is um, very interested in and utilizes the methods and tools of science very often in his, in his writings to some extent. He says, it's not scientism to concede the objectivity and precision of good science. See, so he's already trying to deflect that pejorative any more than it's history worship to concede that Napoleon did once rule France and the Holocaust actually happened. Those who fear the facts will forever try to discredit the fact finders. Well, of course, this is a straw man fallacy. Straw man fallacy is when you attack a caricature of your opponent's point of view. If I wanted to beat up Hugh Ross, then I can make a straw man that looks like Hugh Ross and then beat that up and hopefully people won't notice that wasn't really him. Well, by parallel, you characterize and mischaracterize, rather, an argument, and then you defeat that argument and hope people don't know. That's actually not what the original argument was. Nobody in this debate is trying to say that the scientism that we criticize is tantamount to criticizing somebody who says Napoleon actually did rule France or the Holocaust really did happen. No, that's, that's just history or science. You know, it's not scientism. So that's a straw man fallacy. We're not criticizing the precision of good science. What is more, this ad hominem then doesn't really respond. That's an ad hominem. Well, those who fear the facts. 
I don't fear the facts. We dispute the facts, perhaps, and maybe I've got some facts wrong. I'm, I'm pretty certain I do, and I haven't discovered what those are. And I'll only discover what those are by some kind of hopefully charitable interaction with somebody else who can educate me enough to go, Hal, you, you don't realize you don't know what you're talking about. Oh, okay, thank you, and I've learned something. But to ad hominem this is not the way to go. Instead, the critic of scientism is disputing whether science alone is the arbiter of what constitutes facts in the first place, as he says there, and whether scientists are the only, quote, fact finders. That's what's in dispute. Is science the only way and method to tell us what a fact is and who fact finders are? And the ones who insist, yes, in some sense, are these scientismists that I'm going to be uh, criticizing here as we go along. So, in contrast to the other t-shirts, how about these? Scientism, just another false religion. Well, back at you, pal, who's wearing his scientism uh, t-shirt there. Or how about science, good, scientism, bad t-shirt that you can get off the internet. So let's see some examples of scientism in action. First of all, at least one philosopher. Uh, A.J. Ayers, a very important uh, 20th century philosopher, his little tiny tome here, Language, Truth, and Logic, was for a short period of time incredibly influential until a glaring error was exposed by everyone, including to A.J. Ayer himself, and he more or less repudiated his thesis in Language, Truth, and Logic. But here's what he says. We mean also to rule out the supposition that philosophy can be arranged alongside the existing sciences as a special department of speculative knowledge. Now, you might want to, for the sake of uh, appreciating how serious this claim he's making is, you might want to sweep uh, theology in that little category of philosophy. We mean to rule out the supposition that philosophy can be ranged alongside existing sciences as a special department of speculative knowledge. goes on, there is no field of experience which cannot in principle be brought under some form of scientific law and no type of speculative knowledge about the world which is in principle beyond the power of science to give. The philosopher, as analyst, is not directly concerned with the physical properties of things. He is concerned only with the way in which we speak about them. In other words, the propositions of philosophy are not factual, but linguistic. We're going to come back to these here in a moment. Daniel Dennett, in another source, Breaking the Spell, says, Perhaps some cancer cures are miracles. So, if so, the only hope of ever demonstrating this to a doubting world would be by adopting the scientific method with its assumption of no miracles and showing that science was utterly unable to account for the phenomena. Well, f first of all, that wouldn't even follow logically. Just because your method fails to prove X doesn't mean that X then isn't true. It just may mean that there's something else about X that your method is somehow overlooking. John Shook, whom I had the opportunity to debate at University of North Carolina at Greensboro some years ago, says this, philosophical naturalism undertakes the responsibility for elaborating a comprehensive and coherent worldview based on experience, reason, and science, and for defending science's exclusive right to explore and theorize about all of reality. Now, how about a scientism in action, a few scientists? Well, we all know and love Richard Dawkins here. He says, the presence and absence of a creative superintelligence, that's God, is unequivocally a scientific question, even if it is not in practice or not yet a decided one. Now, the difference between a question being answerable in principle and in practice, you could say, what if somebody tried to argue, well, Pluto, though it's been demoted from planet status, 
ought to be reinstated because it actually tastes like cookies and cream ice cream. Now, if somebody said that, you go, okay, well, in principle, you could know whether that's true or not. If there was some physical way to get to Pluto and get down and lick the planet, I suppose. In other words, in principle, you could do it. But in practice, you couldn't do it. It wouldn't be physically possible, really, to get there to do that. So that's what he means by, well, it may be in practice it hasn't been proven. But in principle, it's a scientific question. He says the same thing in another way in a much earlier work, The Blind Watchmaker, when he says, unlike some of his theological colleagues, Bishop Montefiore is not afraid to state that the question of whether God exists is a definite question of fact. Now, I want you to hang on to that quote in a minute because I'm going to put these two together and make comments about them when I come back to these. He says elsewhere in The God Delusion, there is an answer to every such question about God and miracles, whether or not we can discover it in practice, and it's strictly a scientific answer. The methods we should use to settle the matter in the unlikely event that relevant evidence would ever become available would be purely and entirely scientific methods. Marsha McNutt, who at the time was the editor of the journal Science, in this cover story with National Geographic, The War on Science. I don't know if you can see that, but notice some of the things that constitute a war on science. People who deny the moon landing and people who believe that evolution didn't happen. So in her mind, if you dispute evolution, you're on par with somebody who say, well, we never landed on the moon. Now, Marcia says this, science is a method for deciding whether what we choose to believe has a basis in the laws of nature or not. And then one last scientist, no, one penultimate scientist, I believe that anything, says Peter Atkins, I believe that anything that has been reported reliably, anything, can be interpreted scientifically within the framework of modern science. This is a clip from uh, Peter Atkins' debate he did with uh, William Lane Craig in, in the late 90s in, in Atlanta, Georgia. And my wife, then girlfriend, Rebecca, and I were at that debate. There's a funny story about it that I won't take time to tell you, but maybe sometime afterwards we can tell about it. Just, I'll just give you this warning. If you watch this debate, you might want to hide the children at some point uh, as to who shows up on the camera there. That's all, all I'm going to say. We'll come back to that perhaps later. Stephen uh, Hawking and Leonard Mladenow in their book, The Grand Design, say this. How can we understand the world in which we find ourselves? How does the universe behave? What is the nature of reality? Where did all this come from? Did the universe need a creator? Traditionally, these questions are for philosophy, but philosophy is dead. Philosophy has not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly physics. So the reason philosophy is dead in their mind, and theology would be dead too, is because it falls beyond the boundaries of the methods and tools of science, which alone give us truths about reality is what the implications. So let me respond to these one at a time, as time allows. First of all, answering A.J. Eyre when he says, we mean to rule out the supposition that philosophy can be ranged alongside existing sciences, which is odd to say as a scientist, you would think. But what he's basically getting at is all philosophy can do is sort of a housekeeper. It just helps other disciplines talk better and cleaner about what they're doing. So there's sort of this meta uh, level. There's no field of science which cannot be brought under some form of scientific law, he says. The question I have is this, and you probably already anticipate it. Can this statement be, quote, brought under some form of scientific law? Now think about this. Can that state, is there a scientific law, experiment, observation, measurement, the conclusion of which would be that? No, there isn't one. Does Ayer think that's a fact? That it's a fact that everything, yes, he thinks it's a fact. So he's got a fact that he's giving you that isn't a fact deliverable by science to the effect that there aren't any facts that can be deliverable to you outside of science. It's what uh, philosophers and apologists call a self-refuting statement. 
So if you say, well, no, it can't be brought under some uh, form of scientific law, then it's not a scientific statement, right? By definition, if it can't be brought under some uh, form of scientific law. Well, if it's not a scientific statement, then what kind of statement is it? It's a philosophical statement. Now, we can say a lot more about what does it mean, how does it philosophical, that kind of thing. When I debated, I debated a gentleman, not John Shook, but another gentleman whose name is escaping me at Titanum, at Georgia State University in downtown Atlanta. And I kept making this point because we were ta- arguing about God, and I kept talking about, you know, that's a philosophical question, you know, you got to do this. And finally, during the Q&A, this gentleman came up, and he said, well, who are you to say that it's a philosophical question? And I was kind of taken aback because that's like asking me, well, what kind of tree is that, and what, does, is it deciduous? And it's like, I don't know, that's a botanical question. Well, who are you to say it's a botanical question? Well, it's not like we go, what kind of things to research do we want to give the botanists to deal with? Uh, let's give them the plants. No, that's not how it happened. The people that study plants is what we label the botanists. So it's not like things are philosophical because somebody just stipulated, well, we'll give the philosophers these, these kind of questions. It was the other way around. There were certain types of questions that were being asked historically to which the name philosophy got attached. So he says he's only concerned with the way we speak about them. So what's going on here is sort of this meta kind of, kind of question here. Notice what he says there. The propositions of philosophy are not factual but linguistic. Again, you could ask, as I did, is that statement factual or linguistic? Well, that's a factual statement. For air, exactly what is it about which the philosopher is concerned? Well, he thinks it's only concerned with the way we speak about things. So in his mind, you've got things, the physical properties of things, and then the way we speak about the physical properties of things. So for him, the physical properties of things are the purview of the scientist, and then the way we speak about the physical properties of things, that is, the, the linguistics and the grammar and the categories in, in these things, that's the rule of the philosopher. As self-serving as it is for me to do as a classical philosopher in the tradition of Aristotle and Aquinas, let me juxtapose air with what I would do, and then we'll move on from there. So for air, you have the natural sciences, physics, chemistry, and I.O. Hugh Ross and apology because I didn't put astronomy up there. Uh, it wouldn't fit. That was the reason why I didn't put it up there. <laughs> so these are what are known as first-order disciplines, meaning they are things about which we know directly, whatever that tool of knowing means to somebody. And then philosophy then would deal with things like the categories of those first-order disciplines, the categories of physics, or the logic of physics and chemistry, or the glossary, or the scope or how it relates to other disciplines. That, in Ayer's mind, is what the philosopher does. That would be known as a second-order discipline because it's a discipline about other disciplines. You get that. First order, things about reality. Second order, things about the categories of things about reality. But according to the classical philosopher that we do at Southern Evangelical Seminary, we, we, we tease people that I try to get them to drink the Thomistic Kool-Aid that, that we offer in our classes where it's a heavy emphasis on Aquinas. A lot of evangelicals break out in a rash when they hear us touting the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas. But now, even more and more evangelicals are discovering that this scholastic tradition, the reason why a lot of evangelicals are nervous about that and break out in a rash is because today, most of the time when you encounter a Christian who touts the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas, they're Catholic. So an evangelical is going to have a sort of an allergy to that, Right. But now they're starting to discover this scholastic tradition, whether good or bad, endured well beyond the Protestant Reformation. It had nothing to do with Protestant-Catholic dispute. And the reasons it waned in Protestantism and not so much in Catholicism is itself an interesting philosophical question. So the classical philosopher would schematize it this way. 
Okay, natural sciences, those are first-order disciplines. But philosophy does two things. It does first-order things like act in potency, form in matter, particular universal, substance accident, essence existence. Now, some of those categories and distinctions might mean something to you. If they do, then you need therapy, basically. That's the first thing. And you can get a shot for that, I think, now. It's been approved. Uh, no, these are classical philosophical categories from the ancient Greeks of Plato and Aristotle. So that would be a first-order discipline. That would be the aspects of reality that are the purview of the philosopher, just like the climate would be the purview of the meteorologist or the uh, celestial bodies would be the purview of the astronomer, that different disciplines have their thing to bring to the table. And so it's rare to find people that will acknowledge the fact that maybe philosophy actually has something to bring to the table into the conversation. And then it would also then concur that it can do this second-order discipline. So it actually does both, in my estimation. Now, let's tie that back in to where we're going here and press on in our answer. What do we say about Daniel Dennett? Remember what he said, the only hope of ever demonstrating this is, and demonstrating it to a doubting world would be adopting the scientific method. Well, then the question is, it's a similar, what is the argument offered to support this? In other words, what is your argument that the only hope of ever demonstrating that there's a miraculous cure for cancers is by this method? What's the argument for that? Well, he doesn't give an argument for it. Whatever that argument might be, what kind of argument would it have to be? Is it itself a scientific argument? No, it's a philosophical argument to make that. Whatever, again, it looks like in the details, well, what do you mean uh, by philosophical argument? Maybe that'll become clearer as we go along. What about John Shook? When he says he's defending science's exclusive right to explore and theorize about all reality, he's a philosopher, for goodness sake. He's like talking himself out of a job to go, well, then you basically need to shut up. If you're telling me you have nothing to say, is Shook's statement a part of reality? Well, of course it is. He just made that statement. It's in print. And Sarah, well, then what scientific method would possibly be used to prove that that statement is true? There isn't one because it's not a scientific statement. It's a philosophical statement. Even saying that doesn't mean that he's right or wrong. I'm just making a weaker claim that just the discussion about whether it's true or false is itself a philosophical statement, which means he becomes self-refuting to say there's no fact of reality that the scientist has exclusive rights and only has rights to and the rest of us can't. What about Dawkins? Many people, I would submit to you, have been able to believe that God is real merely by observing the wonders of creation. So we celebrate these verses. They've been mentioned more than once in this conference. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. The heavens declare the righteousness or his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Since the creation of the world, his invisible... Look how quirky the language is here. His invisible attributes are clearly seen. How? Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Romans chapter 2 says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show, and I always hear this verse misquoted. It doesn't say the law is written on the heart. It's the work of the law is written on the heart. If the law was written on the heart, it would evacuate his argument that the Gentiles are responsible before God for their sin, even though they weren't there at Mount Sinai, because you're able to know certain moral truths by virtue of your natural human faculties of reason. And that's true of all human beings, This I think Paul is arguing. So it doesn't matter. They can't say, well, we didn't, know, we didn't know we weren't supposed to murder. We weren't there with Moses, so how could we get in trouble? No. What it is that the law is aiming towards 
that deeds that the law is seeking towards, those moral goods, are written on the heart. So we see God revealed not only in the heavens, but also in the heart. And then Paul says in Acts 14, We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heavens the earth, the sea, and all things in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness. How is he revealing himself? In that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. So God's providential superintendence of the human race on planet earth is a testimony of the existence and goodness of God. It's echoing the sentiment from Psalm 104. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. So my suggestion at this point then is, best case scenario, even in a fallen world, people should be able to see a starry sky and know there's a God, or see God's providential superintendence throughout history and know there's a God. Or for that matter, look at the complexities of the biological organisms and know that there's a God. But again, as self-serving as it might seem for a philosopher to say this, as more toxic philosophical voices have fogged the conversation throughout history, the need of, arises to appeal to deeper issues in philosophy. So I'm not claim, claiming exclusive rights. I'm just trying to carve out a spot at the table as a philosopher. It's pretty easy to see the spot at the table that the scientist has. And I celebrate their voice at the table like what Dr. Ross is doing to make the case for Christ by his knowledge of science. And I love that. I'm glad that he's there doing that. So I'm trying to do the same thing for the philosopher. So that brings me to Richard Dawkins. Notice the two quotes in juxtaposition. Because he's actually saying the same thing, just in two different ways. This isn't a change of view. This is the same thing. But there's a certain way that he worded it that I think gives me an opportunity to expose a fallacy here. Remember on the blind watchmaker, he talks about whether God exists as a definite question of fact. In the context, Bishop Montefiore was a, presumably an Anglican bishop who wasn't a postmodernist. Some of you know what postmodern relativism is. So he finally met an Anglican or a church leader who finally met one who wasn't a relativist, who thought, look, there either is a God or there isn't a God. It's a question of fact. And Dawkins celebrated that. He's like, hallelujah. Well, he didn't say hallelujah. He would have said something else, whatever the atheist equivalent of hallelujah. Maybe that's what he said. I don't know what it would be. I'm not sure. I'll have to ask an atheist. So he's, he's excited that this religious leader recognized that there, it either true there's a God or it's false that there's a God. But when he talks about it later on in The God Delusion, and he says the presence or absence of a creative superintelligence is unequivocally a scientific question, I go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I agree with you that it is a factual question, but why should I agree that it's a scientific question? Because you can't just say that and without argument. You've got to give some argument, which ironically the only argument he could do, give would be a philosophical argument for that uh, in some sense if, if it deals with it in enough detail. But he doesn't give any argument for that. He just imperializes over the question. He just says, science is the only way to know these kind of truths. And since he, he obviously you know, doesn't measure up to the standards of the material world that we're able to measure and observe, then he, he doesn't exist. That's why Dawkins thinks his flying spaghetti monster, if some of you are familiar with that, saying, well, how do you know it's the God of the Bible that created? Maybe it's the flying spaghetti monster. And he comes up with this silly kind of thing. That's why he thinks that's, that's an actual adult response. It's because he thinks that 
All he's offering, the, everything he's offering the flying spaghetti monster can do everything explanatorily that your God of the Bible can without all of the baggage that he would hate with it, like being morally accountable for his soul, right? So, and I go, that's why he could do that because he's totally o- oblivious to the kind of God that Christians have been defending for 2,000 years. He's basically unacquainted with that conversation, which is really 2,500 years if you want to make it even beyond the Christian God. Our time for today has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Would you or your church be interested in having Pat speak or host an apologetics conference? Just give him a call. In Hawaii, that number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And while you're there on our website, take a look around. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. Use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio free to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, you can find a link to donate on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Oh, 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 o